0: Welcome to New Books in British Studies. I'm your host, Christina Fryer. Thanks for joining us. Today I'm speaking with Mark William Palin, author of the new book, The Conspiracy of Free Trade, The Anglo-American Struggle Over Empire and Economic Globalization, 1846-1896, published this year by Cambridge University Press. Palin challenges accounts of late 19th century U.S. expansionism that commonly refer to an open-door empire, an imperialism spurred by a belief in free trade. Instead, he notes, American free traders debated, but ultimately lost out to a powerful version of protectionist economic nationalism that was inspired by German-American economic theorist, Frederick List. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies. I'm Christina Fryer, the host of the channel. Uh, and today we're talk- talking with Mark William Palin, author of the new book, The Conspiracy of Free Trade, The Anglo-American Struggle Over Empire and Economic Globalization, 1846 to 1896. This is out with Cambridge University Press. Mark, uh, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So I was wondering if you could start um, by just uh, telling us a little bit about yourself, um, especially why you became a historian.
1: Well, I—I'll I, I give the very, very brief version, and—and uh, and, and that was that. I, I really—I uh, hadn't planned on it. I was um, at the University of Texas at Austin. I'd, I'd finished a BA in the classics, and I was sort of floundering around, and decided I'd give my my shot at um, as an actuary. Uh, and in doing so, I ended up taking some history classes. I just couldn't help myself, and I ended up taking a history class with a a, a guy named uh, uh, A.G. Hopkins, mm-hmm. who I was not all that familiar with at the time, although I did become much more so uh, as, as the um, semesters were on. And um, uh, it was A.G. Hopkins who, who who wrote this book with uh, uh, Peter Cain, um, British Imperialism, that I, I, I found out uh, uh, one of the best books uh, written on the subject and, and just an amazing teacher. And he took me under his wing and said, I should go to graduate school and and, and become a historian. And, <laughs> and I guess that was the direction I needed. And I, I, after he said it, I said, actually, this... I could see that. And, um, and, and the rest, is, as they say, is history. So I, I ended up getting into the Ph.D. program at UT uh, in what 2007 and finished up in, uh, in, in 2011 and, um, and since then ended up here at the University of Exeter in England.
0: Wow, I mean, if for uh, those of us who are who do British Empire, of course, uh, Hopkins and Kane, uh, very important uh, scholars in, in developing the idea of gentlemanly capitalism, um, I had no idea that they, that uh, Hopkins at least was so aggressive in hunting down and uh, transforming the career paths of uh, future historians.
1: Uh, it was. It was. Yeah. I, I mean, to this day, it's still sort of a, a surprise to me as well. And and um and I, I imagine too that you can see a bit of his uh, his influence in in the book to uh, a degree. To yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um.
0: So, what brought you to this specific project?
1: I, you know what it was is I, I kept coming across references to Secretary of State Cordell Hull. As an American Cobdenite, Secretary of State, Cordova, he was the Secretary of State under, under uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s and early 1940s, the longest serving Secretary of State who oversaw uh, not only the creation of the United Nations, but um, also the American turn away from protectionism to free trade. It was largely owing to his efforts. Uh, and so you had all these references to him as this American Cobdenite. But to me, there's, where is where's the, where's the, the history of the ideas of, and the influence of Cobdenism in America? Mm. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't there. So, you know, in other words, that was that was sort of the, the string that I kept pulling on, and it taking me further and further and back in time. And that is how did uh, we get an American Cobdenite, this this adherent to this British free trade ideology of the Victorian period in the Secretary of State position in the in the nineteen thirties in the United States. And so this is this is how it kind of organically grew from there.
0: Interesting. Now, you say in the introduction that there is sort of this loose idea um, that the U.S. was a free trade nation in the late 19th century, or at least that its imperial expansion was motivated by free trade, um, and you challenge that idea uh, pretty strongly, but where did that idea come from?
1: I think, once again, you have here the influence of British ideas and ideologies and theories at work. Um, I, I'd say it really begins with uh, William M. Appelman Williams, who is this um, – probably the most influential uh, historian of American formulations, at least in the last 50 years or so, uh, who wrote a book in 1959 called The Tragedy of American Diplomacy. Uh, and, and in this, he, he put forth this idea of, of an open-door empire. And this open-door empire, in his view, was this uh, desire, this incessant desire throughout American history to – Open up and acquire new markets, often imperialistically and forcefully, and essentially in the name of free trade to try to open markets to American manufacturers and and American goods. And he sees this as the emphasis, as this driving force behind uh, imperial expansion throughout much of American history, particularly in the late 19th century. Uh, And of course, in in coming, if you think about the timing of it, 1959. This is just six years after uh, the penning, the publication of probably the most influential article in imperial historiography uh, by Gallagher and Robinson, mm-hmm. The Imperialism of Free Trade. Uh, and it, and actually, Williams, in fact, cites the imperialism of free trade and directly references it as sort of, he says the American open-door empire is America's version of British free trade imperialism. Um, so he's directly drawing on these, these British ideas and theories of informal empire and applying them to the United States. What I'm trying to say is um, that might work for some parts of the United States. Perhaps you can make the case for... You know, once the United States actually turns to free trade at home and abroad, but in the late 19th century, this is as far from the case as possible. This is a time of extreme protectionism, of extreme economic nationalism in the United States under Republican auspices. Uh, and so there's, there's been a, a misapplication, this categorization of, of free trade and laissez-faire uh, in the United States at this time period.
0: So uh, let's, let's get into uh, some of the meat of the book. And um, as, you, as you note, you're, um, you're trying to challenge this idea that the U.S. was uh, a free trade uh, imperialist nation from uh, the late 19th century onward. And you have these two uh, political economic ideologies that you find are really battling it out um, in the late uh, 19th century Anglo-American sphere. Um, the first of these is Cobdenite free trade cosmopolitanism, and then the second is Listian economic nationalism. Could you define these two for us?
1: Yeah. So, so Cobdenite cosmopolitanism, or or Cobdenism, as it was referred to at the time. Is the idea that uh, it's based on this kind of precepts that Adam Smith laid out in the Wealth of Nations in 1776? Uh, Cobden was a disciple of Smith. He took the international dimensions of Smith's Wealth of Nations and turned it to this internationalist creed. Uh, in, in a way, it, it was calling for for the you know gradual devolution or even decolonization of the British Empire through free trade, and that. If not only Britain but the world adopted free trade policies, opened their markets to one another, that the world becomes so integrated, interconnected, that everyone would prosper. But also, it would mean that it would be a greater transfer world peace that you wouldn't go to war with your trading partners, right? So, so there's a Pacific dimension to it, uh, as well as a uh, prosperity dimension to this Cobdenite idea of free trade that he espoused so influentially at this time. Uh, so that's the one. And the other one is, uh, is this Listian nationalism, as I call it. This is based on the ideas laid out by the German-American economic theorist Friedrich List, who was actually alive and writing at the same time as Richard Cobden in mm. the uh, early to mid-19th century. Uh, and in fact, Friedrich List writes his work in many ways to try to counteract the influence of Adam Smith and Richard Cobden at this time uh, by articulating this alternative idea for economic development. One that was actually, in many ways, antithetical, at least in the short term, to these free trade ideas. That is that countries, first and foremost, have to look out for themselves. They have to develop their own infant industries. And maybe once they mature, then you can actually have this conversation. But until that happens, uh, it doesn't. And these two ideologies actually get wrapped into this idea of imperial expansion. The way they they map out is it's, it's surprisingly neat Uh, for the most part, how uh, the free trade adherents, the Cobdenites, tended towards anti-imperialism, or at least very, very weak forms of informal imperialism, whereas um, the Listians tended to be, not only in the United States, but also throughout the British Empire, tended to be the the strongest advocates of of strong imperial expansion and even formal empire.
0: And just so that we're all clear, because you do uh, uh, make this clear in the book, by free trade you do not mean zero tariffs, Correct.
1: Yeah, that's. And I think that's a common way of describing it now. I mean we do live in an age now where nations that subscribe to these free trade policies probably have the lowest tariff levels uh, of any time during history. Uh, but it's easy to forget that uh, in the 19th century – There was was no such thing as really direct taxation. There was a bit of it here and there. The British uh, tried, but nothing on the scale that we know today through, like, the income tax. So most of revenues for government came through indirect taxation, primarily through tariffs. So the thing here is that free trade in the 19th century, therefore, still meant that you had tariffs, but they were purely for revenue purposes. They weren't to discourage or discriminate against uh, foreign imports into those countries.
0: So... Cobden dies in 1865, is that correct? And Liszt dies in 1846. Um, And yet we have these ideas really spreading pretty widely through U.S. political circles. Um, So how did they become so popular in the U.S., even though the two main developers of these ideas uh, are not really part of the picture?
1: Uh, I'll start with, it it makes sense maybe to start with Friedrich Liszt first, because he's so much more uh, of uh, a direct you can you can directly trace these things because Frederick List actually, he lived in the United States for, for quite a few years in the 1820s. And it was during this time he actually becomes a, a citizen of the United States. Mm. And it's also here where he learns and reads up on these Hamiltonian ideas of protectionism and adapts them to the mid-19th century uh, economic sphere. And so, so you can actually trace the direct influence of Frederick List during those American years as well as the uh, subsequent disciples that make their way through American political circles, Uh, Henry Carey being a big one who was this economic advisor for the Republican Party throughout the mid-19th century, also from Pennsylvania. Uh, They knew each other, or at least uh, they they would have overlapped uh, in Philadelphia during this time. And you can see it in a variety of other, and this is one of the things I do, is I trace these these Listian ideas as they developed into the late 19th century. Cobden, on the other hand, he was a, uh, a transatlantic man in his own right, uh, what what I've ended up finding – this is one of the su- surprising ones is, – is how Cobdenism actually took root in the United States, and it actually ended up te- taking me down this road of studying anti-slavery ideology as well, which maybe we can get into more detail. But the, the short for- version of this is that Cobden was really good friends with a lot of the leading liberal, even radical voices among elites in the United States at this time, Ralph Waldo Emerson, William Lloyd Garrison, and a lot of these uh, – um, These big names at the time were very close with Cobden, his circle of of free traders in the United States. And this specific dimension that was also closely connected to evangelical Christianity was very enticing to some of these liberal reformers in the United States. And so it's them who take it back through personal friendships and otherwise they take this idea of Cobdenism and try to uh, implement it in the United States.
0: So, uh, and I think we'll ha- we'll, this next question will get us into this question about anti, uh, anti-slavery. These two ideologies are, they're, they're very different. They have very different views of the, or visions of the, of, of the economic future. And yet, before the Civil War, they are in a tenuous alliance within uh, the Republican Party. Uh, can you tell us why that is and why it was so tenuous?
1: And I think that the thing there, too, is, as you touched on with the previous question, is that these are both, at least in the, this antebellum period, they're just starting to, to gain adherence in the United States. And so they're not uh, the dominant ideology uh, of any, any any Republican Party uh, or any party at this time, uh, Republican or otherwise. But what, so what you have is, is – is, is what I've tried to do here is to show that through an ideological approach to the 1850s party formation, the creation of the Republican Party, what you see is essentially you have – In the United States at this time, you have this dominant Jeffersonian free trade tradition in the South um, that's closely tied to slavery and to agrarianism and the plantation system. And then you have this new influx of Cobdenism in the Northeast, Boston and New York, that is a different type of free trade ideology that's tied closely to what we call classical liberal ideas of freedom. Uh, And so they saw free trade as actually closely entwined with with, uh, liberation of mankind. And so you're going to see this anti-slavery free trade ideology of Cobbtonism is going to find its complement at least in the 1850s when the Republican Party is first and foremost the party of anti-slavery. And so even though there might have been different economic ideas uh, battling it out within the Republican Party at this time, this overarching… Uh, adherence to anti-slavery ideas is going to dominate and prevail and tenuously tie them together. So these Listians, these other protectionists, are in the majority in the Republican Party uh, in the 1850s and after, but they're able to see past these differences, at least in the short term, because of their their shared fight for for anti-slavery.
0: Right. So... So there's this there's this fragile alliance. The Listians are starting to become in the in the majority, um, and I, I, I think almost throughout the entire period, the Carbonites are in a minority in the Republican Party, and then eventually, as we'll discuss, uh, out of the uh, Republican Party. As we move into the 1860s, as the book moves into the 1860s, this alliance begins to uh, begins to fracture, and it's 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 fracturing primarily, or maybe in part. Um, because of the moral tariff, uh, can you talk to us about the moral tariff
1: or as some as some British critics refer to it as the immoral tariff yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is one of those great misunderstandings of history that it's. It's. I, I actually find myself pushing back against the most. I, I'm sure you and, and, and listeners have come across this plenty of times, too, the Lost Cause narrative, especially during the, the, the anniversary of the Civil War that we just uh, were having here. And all these age-old kind of ideas about why the Civil War broke out. And one of the ones you always hear is it was about tariffs. And, and it's just almost completely and utterly uh, absurd once you get into the details of it, which, I mean, I, I can go into if you'd like. But it, it's it, the, the, what I try to get, show is that the tariff issue wasn't the primary cause of the Civil War, but it, I think it was one of the primary causes of Anglo-American tensions. And one of the reasons how this, this myth perpetuates itself is actually because of the British. I think it actually really starts in, the, in, the, in, the, in Great Britain mm-hmm. during the Civil War, where it's actually – the British have adopted free trade. They've essentially ad- are adhering to free trade now as an ideology, this Cobdenite idea, and so it's it's easier for them to see the Civil War as as a, a war between protectionist Northeast versus the the free trade South. Especially because it would take a couple years before Lincoln would make the war overtly about uh, ending slavery. So yeah, so when the when the North passes this moral tariff in eighteen sixty one. This is often misconstrued as one of the main reasons for South secession, when in fact most of the southern states had already seceded by the time this bill was passed. You can see how this is all leading to a lot of complications at the time and how it, even mm-hmm. to this day, without the right chronology, it, it, uh, it can be it can be very misleading. Um, so the moral tariff then becomes this very, very big diplomatic wedge. The South tries to... Uh, essentially exaggerate and perpetuate this myth that the tariff uh, issue had caused the break between North and South. And it's something that is very tantalizing, at least in the first couple of years, in, in free trade England. And this is something, for whatever reason, uh, is largely missing from all accounts of Anglo-American relations during the, the 1860s.
0: Interesting. And w- one of the things that I found most fascinating in your description of this is the way that basically the news seems to be coming into London that – Southern slave states are seceding at the same time that they're hearing about the uh, moral tariff, um, and so they make this sort of causation narrative that doesn't exist. Um, but yeah. then it sort of basically runs their diplomacy uh, for the next uh, the next few years, um, and then of course becomes a, a, a something very difficult for uh, us to untangle uh, later. So, how does the moral tariff impact uh, the Cobdenites?
1: There, I mean, in both both sides of the Atlantic are. are- they, they, they find it abhorrent needless to say they're, they're very uh, upset because they already see it and they're already seeing aspects of the republican party who are, are already showing themselves willing to sacrifice the anti-slavery cause because they want to make this party the party of protectionism rather than the party of anti-slavery and this is even before the the, the slaves have been freed you're starting to see this this tension there and so the moral tariff um is, is seen with, with great abhorrence on both sides. Richard Cobbs and John Bright in, in Britain uh, and these American free traders within the Republican Party uh, are, are horribly against it. But they're also even more against this myth that arises around it. So one of the things that I trace too is that it's actually the Cobdenites, despite their objections to the moral tariff, who go on a really extensive propaganda campaign by 1863 um, to make sure that people in Britain know that. This is not what the war was about at all. It's mm-hmm. about anti-slavery first and foremost. And so, yeah, so that's that's the Cottonites. Yes, they're against it. Um, little could they see how this would would continue in, in Republican policymaking, uh, this protectionist element um, into the eighteen sixties.
0: And it seems as though, um, to, to move forward in, in time a little bit, that in sort of the mid-1860s, uh, the Carbonites, the, the transatlantic free trade movement seems to actually be growing. The Carbonites feel as though they're, um, they're getting some measure of success. Um, but as it grows, it's starting to draw... Um, draw attention and draw charges that um, actually this is a British conspiracy, that free trade is, is a British conspiracy. Uh, can you walk us through this? Because this seems pretty central to, to the entire book.
1: Sure, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And you know, and, and this goes back to this, this historiographical intervention about pushing back against this portrayal of late 19th century America as one of laissez-faire and free trade, mm-hmm. when in fact anybody who espoused free trade ideas at this time was was often considered to be part of some vast British plot to undermine uh, the American economy, you know taken in the context of the, you know, from the mid nineteenth century onwards when you really start to see a, a truly global marketplace come into existence, these issues of trade become ever more uh, important and influential and In the United States, which is much lower in the, the developmental scale when it comes to industries as that of Britain, they see this idea of adopting free trade. Uh, at this time to be something that would be great for Britain but really bad for the United States because they wouldn't be able to compete with Britain's cheaper goods flooding American market. So so it's the ideology meets sort of pragmatic uh, uh, pocketbook issues. And so battle over whether it's good for, for consumers to be able to access and have access to cheap cheap goods and whether or not this would bring maybe international peace or whether or not we need to protect American industries from the full brunt of market competition with with Europe, with Britain, at this time is coming to play, and you can see that you know if you think of the Republican Party as as it often, sh- I think, should be seen as the, as the party of big business, really since its foundations, it was looking out for these infant industries in the United States, and it's going to be the Republican Party that's going to see this what they see as this insidious influence of free trade ideas in the United States as as this covert attempt, and and, and of course, as I also show. There are a lot of strong links between the American free trade movement and uh, the Cobdenite free trade movements in England. Right, mm. the, Cop- the Cobden Club in London that's created in 1866 has really close ties with the leaders of of the American free trade movement. You know, it's a who's who of, of, of American Cobden Club members. And so there actually are these real connections between the American free trade movement and these British free traders, which gives um, – for some, at least, it gives more credence to these charges that there is this conspiracy to to destroy the American, the growing American economy before it's able to fully mature.
0: So there's this sense of a, a sort of conspiracy paranoia that's that's really tying in with certain levels of Anglophobia uh, as well.
1: Would you say? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So the, the, yeah, that, and that's a good point. The, the other aspect of this is that uh, again, this other thing that we tend to read back into history, and that is uh, that the United States and Britain had this special relationship. When throughout the nineteenth century, at least this was as far from the case as could be. Of course, the United States uh, had a had a violent revolution against the British Empire, followed by another war, the War of eighteen twelve. During the Civil War, these these are, uh, tensions are exacerbated once again because the British maintain a neutral policy stance towards um, the Civil War and are even seen by some in the North as as tacitly supporting the South, and so. By the late 1860s, 1870s, Anglophobia is extremely strong in the United States, this fear, this hatred of the British. And this is something else that the Republicans are able to tap into. So you have this confluence of of, of protectionist, anti-free trade elements to this uh, um, anti-British sentiment, as well as this, this longer history of, of hatred and fear of the British that the Republicans can draw on. Mm.
0: So throughout the 1860s, There are Cobdenites in the Republican Party. They are a a minority um, and really struggling uh, to to be more successful than the Listian uh, majority. And then as you sort of move through the 1870s and uh, the early 1880s, and of course, uh, this is also at the point of uh, Reconstruction, there is a massive realignment um, in the political structure as the Cobdenites move away from the Republican Party.
1: Can you tell us about that? Sure. Right after the Civil War, there is a a glimmer of hope. The Cobdenites in the Republican Party, always a minority, still feel like maybe they can change it from within, that they can reform the the Republican Party. It's still in its nascent years. Maybe they can redirect it from its increasingly economic nationalist trajectory and and maybe change the Republican Party, make it the party of free trade, of of Cobdenism. And they finally throw up their hands in 1872, and they run that as a third party ticket. Um, This is called the liberal Republican movement. And they run this liberal rep- uh, Republican ticket in 1872. In the uh, that initially, at least, is supposed to be a free trade ticket. Uh, this ends in abysmal failure. Um, perhaps here are lessons as well for uh, there's 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 today. I guess we do <laughs> like this later, but you know there, there's talk today of of, of these uh, free market Republicans thinking about running a, a an alternative to to Trump, but. Um, so, this, this 1872, it's such an abysmal failure, their attempt to run a third party, that they decided to do something different in 1884. And in 1884, they're once again uh, faced with a Republican nominee uh, in the name of James G. Blaine, who is this die hard protectionist and imperial expansionist, two things that go against the Cobdenite tenets. And they're just fed up. And so uh, on the Democratic side, they have this governor from New York who's reform-minded, who's, who, who seems to see eye-to-eye on a lot of these issues, including uh, on this issue of free trade, Grover Cleveland. This is when they make the fateful decision that instead of running a third party, instead of trying to reform their party from within, they're going to uh, abandon the Republican Party and throw their support behind the Democrat, Grover Cleveland. And this is when they become known famously, at least at the time, as the Mugwumps. This is the Mugwump turn. Um, and they 're seen as party traitors thereafter there 's this even more animosity between the Cobdenites and their former Republican brethren thereafter um, but it 's really important too. I mean it, it, we can 't quite get into the details or, or we can 't quite be certain here, but it is pretty clear that this influence of these elite northeastern Cobdenites, uh, their support for Grover Cleveland helped him get the win the election of, of eighteen eighty four
0: interesting, and there are a series of, of, of quite tight elections. Um, as many listeners uh, may know, uh, Cleveland served two terms, but non-consecutively. Um, and so, in his so uh, it is Cleveland. Then it is Benjamin Harrison, who is m- more back in line with economic nationalism, uh, and then Cleveland uh, term two. Um, so, if we sort of, I don't really want to conflate those because there's a lot there, but. As I was reading it, it struck me that these three terms, there's really a pretty significant conflict over the U.S. role in the world. Um, Would you agree with that characterization?
1: Yeah. I mean, this issue of trade, American trade with the world, whether it's going to be one of free trade or one dominated by economic nationalism, really is the dominant issue. Uh, Depending on the year, sometimes it's the monetary issue, gold, gold standard versus silver, which I think are often intertwined with one another. But this is a period, and maybe this is one of the reasons why the late 19th century is so often ignored, uh, is because it is so much about economic issues. And I mm-hmm. think the reason why those economic issues are so important, though, this is, this is when the United States, is when the political parties uh, and others in, within the, uh, the American um, policymaking community are trying to figure out how does the United States fit itself into this growing world of, of globalization. Right. So how does the United States integrate with the global economy? And – This is to me what this trade debate is about. And and ultimately, this is going to shape the course of American imperial expansion as well.
0: Now, one thing that happens during the uh, term of Benjamin Harris, um, and actually, I mean, it it has to do with Harris, um, but actually foreshadows um, another player, is the uh, 1890 uh, McKinley Tariff. And uh, this seems to me to be perhaps the most central piece of legislation that you describe in the last several chapters of the book. So can you tell us uh, about um, McKinley? This is, of course, William McKinley, who, who would become president. Um, but can you tell us about his economic policy as well as the specifics, or as, as many specifics as you want to give us, about the McKinley Tariff?
1: Yeah, so, so it's, it's um, I mean, William McKinley was known as the Napoleon of protection. Huh. Um and and he was uh, a disciple. Uh, essentially, you can uh, one of the things I do is you can trace the, these his, his protectionist ideas and his evolution of his protectionist ideas. as It becomes ever more expansionist in its in its outlook um, to these ideas of, of Frederick List and, and American disciples um, in between uh, the eighteen forties and and when William McKinley becomes more influential uh, and ultimately president in, in the late eighteen nineties. So in eighteen ninety, uh, William McKinley is. A congressman in the House of Representatives, and he's he starts working on this uh, this protectionist tariff bill. Um, this is during the presidency of, of Benjamin Harrison, as you pointed out. This Republican who who sits in between uh, the two presidencies of Grover Cleveland, Uh, so was 1889 to 1893 is the Harrison years. Harrison appoints as the Secretary of State James G. Blaine, the same Blaine who uh, was the presidential nominee in 1884, this hardcore protectionist and imperial expansionist. And so William McKinley is, is, is in a good spot, and the Republicans are, are, uh, have a majority in both houses of Congress. They have the executive. Uh, this is their time. So uh, he moves forward with this bill, and I, yeah, I won't get into the play-by-play, uh, blow-by-blow, but what this McKinley tariff ends up having in it is something that I consider to be a revolutionary aspect, and I'm not the first. The, uh, uh, the Wisconsin School of, of Foreign Relations Historians have touched on this, but maybe not in the same way, uh, and that is it includes a reciprocity provision. And what this allows, it allows for the protectionist policy of the United States to actually expand itself into foreign markets. And this is one of the reasons why I think this is uh, this time of, of protectionism has been misconstrued as one of free trade because wow. because the United States is trying to expand its markets. The only difference is it's not actually trying to do so through some sort of free trade lens. It's actually trying to expand its protectionist boundaries. Uh, and, and acquire new markets and create its own sort of neo mercantilist system, uh, and this is this is able to be done in a big way because of this reciprocity provision of the McKinley Tariff of 1890. Um, this allows the United States, the president of the United States, to to sign bilateral treaties with countries, but with the threat of retaliation if that country does not do essentially what what it says it's going to. So, and it also makes sure too that. Those countries that are signatories can't sign a similar trade agreement, uh, a reciprocity agreement with any other countries. So rather than actually expanding free trade as the free traders would have liked, this actually limits the free trade aspects of these reciprocity agreements, as well as allowing this sort of coercive element for the United States to punish these mainly Latin American signatories um, if they stepped out of line.
0: Mm. So this is what you characterize as the closed-door empire, correct?
1: That's right. Yeah, this is the beginnings of it. This is going to allow for it. It allows the United States to access these markets that it didn't previously have have access to mainly in Latin America, at least in the early 1890s. Um, But in doing so, it's it's, it's actually expanding the America's uh, uh, protectionist block when it expands into these countries. So, you know, and this is going to take on an even greater uh, role once the United States acquires a colonial empire after the Spanish-American War. Uh, It's it's telling that what does the United States under under well then President William McKinley do with these colonies once it gets them? It makes them these protectionist enclaves for the United States. It doesn't make them open doors, right? So this is. There's, there's, there's plenty of examples here beginning with the McKinley Tariff in which the United States is, is expanding, yes, acquiring new markets, yes, but under the rubric of protectionism rather than a free trade.
0: Now, this causes some problems for the, for the British Empire – in particular, because of the two areas that, uh, or the two areas of the British Empire that um, the increasingly expanding uh, U.S. borders or, or uh, neighbors, uh, which would be of course Canada and uh, the British Caribbean. So, can you talk to us about the uh, impact the McKinley tariff had on the British Empire? There's some actually pretty significant ideological changes happening back in Britain
1: yeah and and it doesn't begin with the McKinley tariff. Mm. but one of the things that again it's just this is largely missing from the imperial historiography from the british side is is the importance of American protectionist legislation on the changing dynamics of british imperial expansion mm-hmm. so so you have the Cobdenites uh, who are. Sort of running the show from the 1840s until around 1870, but then you start, you start to see a bit of a retreat from these Cobdenite these adherents, uh, you know, Gladstone being probably the most prominent one uh, in Britain at that time. And uh, you start to see a resurgence of British protectionism. Not just in Great Britain, but actually throughout the British Empire. And in fact, one of the things that I discovered in getting into this is that the leaders of this protectionist imperial movement with, within the British Empire—they were largely turning to, to Frederick List for mm. inspiration. So you have this Listian influence within the British Empire too, challenging the Cobdenite orthodoxy. Um, so it gets to the point that one of the things they say too is that you know Cobden and Adam Smith said that if we turned to free trade, the rest of the world would follow suit. But in reality, what's happening, and the McKinney Tariff is a prime example of this, is that the world is doing the exact opposite. And so now we, we need to change things up. We can't keep going along with this. We need to uh, uh, fight tit for tat. We need to punish the United States through uh, our own protective tariffs, and, and, and then maybe we could sit down at the table and, and renegotiate. So this is what's going on, and this is what the McKinney Tariff helped spark, is this – this crisis within the British Empire in the late 19th century, uh, as the covenite Orthodoxy is increasingly under attack, not just in the metropole but throughout the White Empire—the the Canada, South Africa, Australia—in particular, you're starting to see these um, protectionist elements. In fact, Canada, uh, South Africa, and Australia, and a variety of Australian colonies, are all turning to protectionism at this time. Mm-hmm. So, Great Britain more and more is sort of sitting by itself as this free trade uh, lighthouse. Um, to which most of the world is is ignoring. And yeah, the the economic impact of the McKinley Tariff on the British Empire is something that I trace uh, on these imperial debates is something that I trace. And then, of course, as you point out, this is probably the most important for Canadian-American relations and how Canada ends up uh, fitting within the global economic system. And this ends up being the 1891 Canadian uh, federal elections. Uh, in many ways, this, this election was about whether or not Canada would tie itself more closely economically and even perhaps politically with the United States because of the McKinley Tariff or whether or not it would actually tie its economic future with the British Empire. Um, and the Conservatives win. Uh, they beat, defeat the Cobdenites, the, the Liberals in Canada in the 1891 elections. And it's, and it's because of this that Firth will for essentially 100 years, uh, Canada and the United States would not have uh, free trade. Mm. It hinged upon this. So uh, even on that local level, you can see the effects of these, these, um, these protectionist policies uh, playing out in the British Empire.
0: So the McKinley tariff sort of, um, I guess, presages um, McKinley's rise to power, um, as well as his particular brand of uh, protectionist uh, expansion, Um, And in the final chapter, basically it seems as though the Lyftians are in full control um, by the end of uh, the 19th century, uh, which is the general traditional starting point uh, in the historiography, at least, uh, of an American overseas expansion, particularly into the Caribbean. Um, What else should we know about McKinley's uh, uh, term as president?
1: Well, I I think one of the the main reasons for the common portrayal of this as an open door or free trade imperial expansion, colonial acquisition under McKinley. Um, of course it ignores, as I said, the fact that this is the Napoleon of protection and he, he, he lived and he died a protectionist through and through. But that it you know, this construing of it it's it's because of the open door notes. So uh, his secretary of state, uh, when, when William McKinley is president during the acquisition of, the, of these various colonial territories, um, this is also the same time when his secretary of state, John Hay, enunciates the open door notes calling for open access, um, equal access to the China market where the United States did not have any real influence or access to. Um, and so because of this enunciation of what kind of sounds like free trade uh, – this Republican administration of William McKinley and this uh, imperial policy is, is commonly portrayed as one of free trade. And one of the things I'm trying to show here is that you, you have to ignore that rhetoric and look at the realities. What are, what are the actual policies that they're implementing? How does this fit within the larger rubric of this expansionist protectionist doctrine that the Republicans were uh, uh, practicing under under William McKinley? Um, and so that that's, I think, the, the key there is is going back and actually – rediscovering the protectionist roots of American imperial expansion. That, that strikes a stark contrast, perhaps, with the post-1945 U.S. Uh, advocacy of free trade ideas. Right. And, and William McKinley epitomizes this.
0: So you basically opened the door to the uh, to the to the 20th century and 21st century. Um, this book is particularly timely. We've already hinted at some of the ways uh, that it's that it's a timely at the moment, as uh, certainly we're having we're, we're there's a rise again in protectionist uh, discourse. What would you say are the key consequences in the 20th and now 21st century of this battle between the Cobdenites and the Listians?
1: By and large, I'd say for the first half of the 20th century, it, it is, it's really a Listian world. And if you look at it, the long history of the Republican Party, uh, it's, the, you know, the, it's the anomaly, the exception to the rules is the Republican adoption of free trade ideas uh, under the Reagan administration okay. uh, of the 1980s. And, and, and it has since been sort of this – what we think of as this orthodoxy of Republican economic uh, ideology. But in reality, looking at it from the, the, the party's foundation of the 1850s into the, the president that 's the anomaly and so one of the things I've tried to say is that from this longer historical perspective donald trump's uh, advocacy of protectionist uh, ideas is quite in keeping with republican ideas this is this is actually a return to the status quo interesting I, and, and in many ways i mean I think maybe one of the more striking things about this—I mean, I, I don't think that—that that, I mean, Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, was was much more um, supportive of of various trade liberalization schemes. Mm-hmm. I think her, as as a presidential nominee, is—I think for political purposes—is—is—is is, is moving away from that. But I, I think there's a there's a clear difference between between where Clinton falls on this, this. This she's still much more, I think, of the the long-term Democratic adherence to free trade that we would expect. It's just not quite so noticeable during an election year.
0: Right, right. I've uh, taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much uh, for uh, for speaking with us. Uh, we do have one final question that we always ask, um, okay. which is, uh, what are you working on now?
1: The new The new project is, in, in a certain sense, it's a continuation of the last one. So the last one ends at around 1896, 1900. The new one is a look at this free trade protectionist conflict uh, that takes on an even more global cast in the early 20th century. And it plays an even bigger role, I think, in debates over imperial expansion uh, and, and uh, peace advocacy. So this is, this is actually a, it's an economic history of the international peace movement of the 20th century. So oh, right. wow. Yeah.
0: Well, that's, uh, we are definitely looking forward uh, to, to that project. So, uh, Mark Palin, I want to uh, thank you again uh, for talking with us today here at New Books in British Studies um, about your book, uh, The Conspiracy of uh, Free Trade. I really enjoyed our conversation. Hope you did as well.
1: Thank you, I did. Thank you for having me again.
0: You've been listening to New Books in British Studies. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.